0: Guess what? What? You're an author.
1: Oh, my God, you're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon Kindle. It's soft cover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform mm-hmm. talks about gender double standards it has interviews with practitioners it has and interviews survivors. survivors and practical things you can do but it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model and uh, i'm really excited about all it right. it only took two and a half years to do okay all well right.
0: go get the book on amazon.com Amazon. all right we're back we're
1: back and um, this is partnered with a survivor.
0: I think this is episode 20. 20. We should I don't know if we should keep saying it. I don't know it. if we should keep saying it because we're losing track. <laughs> um,
1: and I'm David Mandel, Executive Director of the Safety Together Institute.
0: And I'm Ruth Jones Mandel, and I am the e-learning manager and the communications manager.
1: And um, we're really honored today to to have Dr. Eloise Cepeda with us, um, calling in from, from Austin, Texas. And um, I'll give her formal title, you know, so sort of her little bio, and then I'll say how I know her. Um, Dr. Cepeda, can I say that? Is that, you know, you, you, you like that?
0: Uh, <laughs> is
1: a national expert trainer and consultant on restorative justice and the rigorous intersection of child welfare, family violence, and, and race equity. So I may have to ask you about the rigorous part of that, um, which I think is great. And, um, we're we're having, um, I'm going to call her Eloise now because that's sort of um, what she wants and, and how I know her is sort of, uh, I met Eloise uh, a few years ago, Eloise about four years ago now, I think at this point.
2: Yes, and, already.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I think, it was, and this, she came to our Safe It Together training at our conference in Austin, Texas, or San Antonio, wasn't Austin. And um, she dove right in with our core training and, and since then, um, we've had this relationship back and forth where we've done some work together. We've talked and the more I've learned about Eloise, about your work, the more I think it's amazing. And, and we just want to have you on the call to talk, yes. you know, and, and we actually had a hard time figuring out what to focus on because, you know, your experience with the safe and together model, you know, using it in uh, advocacy for child welfare involved survivors, um, and then as the more you and I talked, you know, learned about your restorative justice work around domestic violence, which is so critical at this point, you know, when we need to be talking about, uh, more than ever, about um, accountability, interventions with perpetrators, support for survivors that that doesn't necessarily go through the law enforcement pathway. You know, and then also you're working around human trafficking, you know, and, and the intersection of human trafficking work in domestic violence, which is underexplored and under identified. So, so for our audience out there, this is what we're going to try to talk about. We may, we may even have Eloise come back a second time. We feel like we can't get all the things done in, in 40 minutes.
0: Yeah. know. Right and then the other bit of that, and, and Eloise is totally comfortable with us disclosing this, is that she has a, a unique perspective besides having, um, you know, incredible training and experience within the field. Eloise is also a survivor. So that notion of partnering with survivors is something that I think probably comes very naturally to her. Um, so we're just really grateful that she has that full sort of look at the world because it really does benefit systems and it benefits survivors within those systems.
1: So Eloise, I was hoping you could start by telling our our listeners a little bit more about yourself and also how you became initially interested with Safe and Together and and. and, and uh, that work
2: yeah, well. Thank you, David and Ruth, for having me on um, your podcast today. Um, I'm so excited about um, this conversation because I feel as if our values align from day one. Um, sitting in that core training, I was like, "This is where I need to be." And so, um, a little about myself: um, I am i um, definitely truly a child and adult survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, family violence was my perception of what family is. Um, and um, also the, co- the layer of community violence of where I live. So violence was my norm. It is what I knew um, to be true about life and people. Um, and so it, it's, um, been a very long and interesting journey. I have met um, amazing people um, who have helped along the way. Um, whether they helped in a meaningful way and even in a harmful way to see harm um, and experience that is something that I have um, truly tried to address and also to monitor within myself as I serve survivors today. Mm-hmm. Um, my work with with um, safe and together did start at the core training. Um, I think the work um, really began with me first, um, as I sat through the trainings and um, day by each day I felt like I went. Um, I dove deeper into myself, mm-hmm. um, and at the end of that core training, I remember walking away with a sense. Um, and saying this statement literally out loud um, that the deficit that I had felt for so many years of uh, missing pieces in my life or um, whether I had been a um, good enough parent or not to keep my children from, um, you know, the harm that I had experienced um, was good enough. And so I just remember that sense of was you know, did I do enough? Was I good enough? And walking away from that core training thinking, I did a, I did a pretty good job. Um, I I survived and I did a pretty good job.
1: Right. Right. It, it, you know, I, I really appreciate you saying that because for me, you know, I can't think of anything that means more to me mm-hmm. um, when I hear a survivor say, I took something away from your training or the training reflected my reality or nobody's ever said that to me. And I, I still remember sitting with this woman and she came to me to do research. She was getting her master's degree and she was, she was talking about domestic violence and she wanted to know about the model and, and um, she was a survivor. She identified as a survivor and, and, and she was still being dragged through the family court by, by the person who abused her, you know? So even though she was out of the relationship, the abuse couldn't stop. And we were talking about all the professionals that she had met. And um, I was talking about the third critical component. We we're talking about that in the full spectrum of the survivor's efforts to promote the safety and well-being of kids. And and I somehow we got to talking about, it. I asked her and said, did anybody ever say to you, I see how hard you've worked to protect your kids? Mm-hmm. And and she had dealt with, you know, maybe dozens of professionals, attorneys, therapists, uh, And nobody had said that to her, you know, and she started crying. We're in the middle of a coffee shop and she started crying because nobody had ever said that to her. And to my mind, that's one of the most basic things you can say to a survivor is I see how hard you've been working to make things better for your kids.
0: Yeah. Um, It really truly is the bottom line measure of our success is, does it increase the safety, the nurturance and stability for survivors and their children? Like that's, that's the end user right there. So it's just, it, it's amazing to, to know that that gave you so much hope and a lift and, and you connected with it. Um, I know that uh, we have a limited amount of time and so I wanna jump into some definitions. You do a lot of restorative justice work. And actually before we start talking about that, I don't know if you can do a little myth busting about what that means, particularly in this current context where we're seeing a lot of reform and that conversation is bigger than it was before. So yeah, tell us about that.
2: It is, thank you so much. Um, because I'm glad you addressed it as a MythBuster, buster um, because <laughs> it's not uncommon when I say restorative justice and people may have Googled it or read an article um, where it's only defining a mediation um, format between a victim and offender. Um, but restorative justice is, is way beyond that. Um, restorative justice, um, is also referred to as restorative practices, a uh, transformative justice, restorative discipline. There's, there's all types of branches that have, um, that have grown from this process. It is actually an indigenous practice from, Indigenous and African American tribes, and it's a way of doing community. It was a way of doing life together, using values and guidelines to, um, to maintain safety, to build um, and, and sustain relationships. Um, and the sustaining part is where um, is that gray area where harm can happen. And so it's saying, um, you know, I had a relationship with you. Um, or um, I want a relationship with you and, and we've got to work through this harm in order to get there. 80% of the work in, of restorative justice is community building. Mm-hmm. Um, that is building and maintaining those relationships, understanding what makes people um, tick, where they feel safe, um, what's important to them. If listening is your greatest value, and we're having a conversation and I feel like you're not listening, then I know that I could potentially offend you or disconnect, there could be a disconnection there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also a way of seeing and hearing everyone's needs by equalizing the space. Um, And that's very important um, in the, especially using it in this field, whether it in the space is a survivor and, an advocate, um, there's still a power dynamic, right? The advocate still has access and resources that the, the survivor needs. Um, if it's family, parent, and child, there's still the power dynamic. So it is also a framework to help equalize that dynamic so we can have real conversations to discover um, what your needs are, what the harms you've encountered, and what um, what you need from either um, the person that's kept
0: that has caused harm or the community to make things right. So what's interesting to me is is that some of the restorative justice um, uh, amendments, for example, in New York um, included um, immediate release for misdemeanor offenses. And immediately in the domestic violence world, we know what that means for victims. So how do we position restorative justice in a place where it honors victim experience and victim safety and victim needs, as well as balancing off that accountability which isn't focused on incarceration that particularly impacts communities of color and Mm -hmm. communities which are in poverty as well. Mm -hmm. That's a great question.
2: Um, Anytime that law enforcement or any legal entity is involved, um, with a family, my first question to a survivor, whether it's a survivor of domestic violence, human trafficking, sexual assault, any um, victimization is what does justice look like to you? Mm -hmm. Um, and the, at that point, the survivor is empowered, um, to make a decision about what that outcome should look like what it should involve. Majority of the time um, when I'm speaking with survivors and some of the outcomes from survivor-focused groups, um, it involves more family support, family education, family resources, um, which which are all counter to incarceration. Um, they, they want to be safe and they want their children to be safe, but they also want their partner to be safe. Um, and then there are um, situations where the violence is extreme, and they don't want to be um, around that person who is intentionally causing um, harm on um, the the victim or survivor or their children. Um, and that's a that's a whole other conversation of how do we keep this person um, apart from you because that's what you want and um, who is this person in your life? Is it a parent who is eventually going to circle back around and be in the children's life? Or um, is this someone that you can move on and do life with? So it does still involve a lot of conversation with um, the survivor because the impact on the financial burdens um, if it is a partner, the removal of a parent, the, you know, the job loss, um, the additional financial burdens, fees, I mean, the, the cost for service, um, the list goes on. So it really does circle back around um, and it is still very survivor focused.
1: So, so I'm, I'm struck, you know, um, by your question, what does justice look like? Because I think, I think a lot of times this, the mainstream systems are very much, what does safety look like? And that often the system is defining safety. I know the child protection system, which you and I are both very familiar with, has very specific definitions and sometimes unrealistic definitions of, of both what safety is and what 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 somebody should do to achieve it. And I think about the difference between asking how and how beautiful it is to ask a survivor, what does justice look like? Mm-hmm. Um, it will get a different answer than what is you know ask somebody what does safety look like. And even I sometimes I'll coach people to say, well, did you ask her what will make things better? And that's a much more open-ended question because um, safety comes with all these kind of, these baggage, these preconceived notions that the professionals have. And, and so I love the idea that you're asking what does justice look like? And I don't think I've ever heard that question being asked, I
0: actually got very emotional when <laughs> you asked that question. <laughs> I was like, nobody's ever asked me that question either. All right. Uh, so it's a it's and I think what what I'm wondering about is sort of that professional judgment and that professional resistance to believing that survivors actually do understand what safety is for them and for their kids and what contact looks like that would feel good to them. We've taken this very black and white view that all domestic violence is the same. All domestic violent perpetrators are just as dangerous as the other, therefore leave, you know, leave, right. leave, which is wrong. Leave, which which is is wrong. Um, but how do, how do you deal with that sort of professional resistance of I know what's safe for the survivor, I know what justice is, they're ignorant, They've been in multiple abusive relationships. Therefore, they've lost their right to show that they know what's good for them. Right.
2: Uh, This is such a great question. And I have so many conversations that I've had over the years running through my mind right now. It's not unusual that I would get a call um, and say, can you speak to this survivor? She's in denial. Um, that's, That's a typical call. Um, that I would receive, and then I was kind of struck when I heard um, a professional in a very um, prominent organization call me the survivor whisperer, and they said, if, <laughs> and "I was like, what does that mean?" <laughs> and and they said, you know, if survivors are um, are really struggling with safety and with um, you know understanding the level of harm that they're in call Eloise and I thought wow I and they said what is it that you do and I said I listen <laughs> right. I listen and and I ask questions um without assumption I ask questions without um you know and and I monitor myself right because a, a lot of the work that we have to do Um, I think should be done across the world, but especially in the restorative world is that inward work Mm -hmm. Um, is why am I going into this meeting? What is my motive? Um, Do I already have in my mind a set of outcomes that I want to see? And if I have yes on any of those boxes, then I need to check myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I need to go into the space clear minded to hear um, from survivors about what their experiences are because 99% of the time, they're not in denial. They know that they have been harmed. They know that they don't wanna be harmed. They know that they don't want their children to see them being harmed. Um, So it's how do you build, and it goes back to that tier one of restorative practices, the community building process, right? How do you build that trust um, which again aligns with um, safe and together is how do you partner with the survivor in a way that um, if they share information with you, it's not going to be used against them.
1: Right. And you, that's, oh, go ahead.
2: No, I was saying, and that that's really the key. That's that's yeah. the whisper. That's
1: <laughs> that's well, it's 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 you know it's really fun. I mean, I've got so many things running through my mind. You know, I'm thinking about how when I was overseeing domestic violence consultants, um, you know, in the state I, I was working in, you know, that, that the same thing would be said about our domestic violence consultants. How did you get her to share so much information or how did you get her to talk? And sometimes it was really something very prosaic, which was you were interviewing her with her kids in the room, you know, and they were, you know, over the age of two or three. And, and, and she was trying to protect them from hearing things that they, she didn't want them to hear And so she wasn't telling you what was going on. And then the next time we came back and one of the consultants and cleared the room of the kids and all of a sudden she starts talking. And sometimes it's really something very simple like that, but, but it's all in the same vein of, of, of listening. Um, We would tell people uh, workers, assume she was safety planning for herself and her kids before you went out. So talking about checking yourself, like have that working assumption versus oh, she's still there. She doesn't understand. Or, you know, if yeah. she keeps having contact with him, that must mean she's picking him over the kids. All those things are those those self-checks you're talking about that people need to be aware of. So that, that's one thought. But I have a question for you, which is, do you have a, a standout example of a response you got from a survivor when you asked her what is justice, domestic violence survivor particularly, what does justice look like? Do you have something that, an example of that, that sort of sticks in your mind of what What somebody said that either was, I don't want to say unusual, but sort of moved you or sort of was um, memorable in some way.
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool, the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child-family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training.
0: The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way.
1: That's right. It's like having a safe and together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy academy.safetogetherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor.
2: Um, I do so. So I asked, um, and this is very recent. Um, this is during COVID. Um, I asked a survivor that question: "What does justice look like for you?" And she said, um, "This particular uh, particular survivor was very much on her own, um, very." little family or family support or um the ability to support her Um, and so she says um what justice looks like to me right now is that he would just let me parent on my own without undermining everything that i do um pay his child support and not threaten me every time we get into an argument and, and pay all my medical bills that I've had to, um, encounter Mm -hmm. due to this violence. And, um, I said, okay, is there anything else? And she says, no, she says, I don't want to go through the legal system. I don't trust the legal system. She says, um, you know, it has failed me, um, before. And so I just heard her out. We had those conversations um, on the other end, and we're working towards you know him paying. He, he's already on child support, but we're working towards him paying those medical bills, mm-hmm. um, which is something also that um, his is not. Does not happen often, right? The, uh, the survivor is directed to file for victim, you know, with victim services and get um, crime compensation. And so someone else is having to pay that. And so that, uh, that accountability um, is falling on back on the system that she's saying she doesn't trust. I
0: love that. I love <laughs> that, that. What an amazing way to create accountability if you have to be accountable financially to the harm that you cause somebody, that is like, for so many people, the ultimate in accountability, where it's like, I don't want to do that again, because I don't want to have to pay all that money. You know, unfortunately, it, but that is amazing. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people will, will listen to this and they'll say, well, this is great, this restorative justice thing, but how do you really keep perpetrators accountable You know, that's a great example. What are some other examples that you have about perpetrator accountability within a restorative justice framework?
2: Um, So that's a great question. I think perpetrator accountability also causes us in in the restorative world to spend that same amount of effort um, Mm -hmm. and time to work with um, perpetrators Um, or the person who's using violence to find out what their root causes are. Um, And so some of that accountability may lead them to address harm that either they didn't have resources to address in their own life, or um, they were able to ignore and not not deal with. Um, I'll give you an example of um, perpetrator accountability using the restorative practice. Um, there was a um, person who had caused extreme violence um, and spent some time in jail. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the other thing about restore, re- um, the restorative process is, yes, our idea does not point to mass incarceration, but it also does not um, replace consequence, right? Because if you're not willing to Be restorative or to engage, um, then there still has to be some level of accountability. Um, And so this person had spent um, multiple years incarcerated, um, had harmed multiple um, girlfriends um, over a period of time. And as this person was approaching um, the board for release, um, we, we would just keep laying these, um, these asks down, that there would be mental health engagement, um, that there would be um, some self-assessment um, work, some mentorship. Um, and so we started um, just putting these asks and finding out, and throughout these, the years of working with this particular person, we were able to find out that this person's um, father was murdered um, right in front of him at four years old, had been sexually assaulted in a while in jail. Um, and so we were able to, child abuse, um, I mean homelessness, you name it, um, identify all of these factors where shame can rise up and cause a person to avoid accountability because then they have to avoid dealing with and exposing what is deep and safe buried inside of them, so that accountability was turned inward, um, where the real change happens, right? The change doesn't happen on the outside, we all know about the check boxes, um, but it forces an inward, um, or not forces, but it suggests an inward approach to addressing that harm.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I'm I'm just thinking as you're talking about one the word restorative practice or restore, you know, the idea of making whole and making, you know, making individuals whole, making making communities whole, Mm -hmm. and and really everywhere, you know, we're working with marginalized or oppressed communities. You know that there's there's been a theme in my work from the beginning where, you know, in the U.S. it would be you know first African American colleagues and and Who was saying to me, you know, we we want to balance off, you know, change and safety, or we want to both have safety and transformation for the person who's chosen violence, because we see the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the impact on men in terms of mass incarceration, and and the same thing has been true as we've worked in Australia. You know that that you know talking about history of colonization, and same thing's true in the U.S. Obviously. But, you know, working with with communities in Australia as well, where they're trying to say thank you for paying attention to our men mm-hmm. and treating them as if, as if they're important or recognizing their importance." Because I think the as if part is is the system doesn't, I don't think the mainstream system doesn't treat those men as being important. And I think somehow we have to find a way to keep, and, and these restorative practices are one way to do that, keep saying, the violence isn't okay. The control isn't okay. Right. But but you're a human being, and you have value to yourself, to your community, to your kids, to your partner or ex-partner, and and you matter. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be embedded in there as well.
0: As if from a from a survivor perspective, you know we all know that children are forced into contact with their domestically violent parents via a siloed system, which is the family court. If that parent goes to jail and no behavioral remediation has happened, no addressing of trauma, and then the trauma is compounded in that system of incarceration with violence and sexual assault, it is crazy as a society that we think that those people are going to come out and not continue to abuse their family, their children, their partner. Right. There is just insanity in the system, in my mind, in that regard. And so, you know, the naming, claiming, and changing principle that we talk about in the Choose to Change, uh, the, the men's behavior change the, that we have, which is on our family resources page, um, is really a great uh, measure of, of whether change has happened. Has that person been able to name it? To claim the harm that they did to their family, and that that um, that payment, you know, that's happening from that person, <laughs> that victim. That is a type of claiming. Yeah. It's a it's an it's a monetary yeah. claiming of I did you damage, and now I have to I have to pay for that. I have to pay for that ongoing, you know, care for you because I caused that harm, you know. And so I, I just. I wonder how we got here sometimes. I just, as a, as a survivor of child abuse um, and domestic violence and, and sexual child abuse, I'm just like, how did we get here? You know, so I'm really, really happy to hear that you're landing in that place. Um, and I, I hope that the conversations that are happening now accelerate that um, while still honoring the reality of the danger that many survivors are in, in this situation especially during COVID, especially during the lockdown, you know, to make sure that we're 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 looking at restorative justice from both sides of the coin. Are the victims and their survivors safe? Are they receiving the justice and the remediation that they need? And are we also um, assisting those people who are choosing violence to do better? You know? And I, I think
2: about um, you know the the cliche that um, we we all have probably been guilty of saying, and I say I say probably I, I don't discount myself that I've said it before. I will never. I have not said it for years. The cliche is, I have created a safe space for you, and we assume that the spaces that we create for either the survivor and even the person who's causing violence is safe because um, we control that environment. (laughs) So it goes right back to control and that power dynamic. Um, And I often give this example that um, you could be in an office with no windows and no one can look in but to a survivor, they may feel trapped. They may have been locked in a room that looks like that. You may have red curtains and they were sexually assaulted, and that's all they saw was red curtains, um, your tone, your um, the ambience in the room. And so um, and, that, and those are just the physical things, right? We haven't even gotten to um, you know the, the dynamics of you know, who we are as people and what we bring into that space um, and considering the race and culture and ethnicity. And we haven't even dove into that because I agree that's a whole nother episode right. um, because that's, that's important. Um, and so I think that's a big mistake that a lot of people make. And, and the other reason why I love Safe and Together is because I feel that um, this process Gives agencies a tool to work with Um, and and I'm often asked, I just need um, a step, you know, one through 10 on how to do this. And I'm like, it's a process. It doesn't work that way. Whereas I feel like safe and together get really gives people um, a process that they still have to work through um, and also cause them to do that inward work. Um, And then the other the other um thing I wanted to say when um, I was hearing you ask how did we get here is, um, you know, is that historical trauma for one, right, uh, back in, you know, all the way back to slavery, all the way back to the, you know, day of colonization, um, you know, the, the power dynamic there. Um, and, and what it took to gain that power dynamic, right? Women and children were taken and raped and men were forced um, to go work uh, in the fields or you know, under captivity. And so this is the modern day version of what took place in day one. Um, but where we are today and what's groundbreaking or what can be groundbreaking As a survivor, um, I know for me, was can you handle my truth? Um, Can I trust you with my truth? What are you going to do with my truth? Are you going to um, use it against me? Are you going to judge me? Are you going to um, outcast me? Are you going to. Um, exploit me. What are you going to do with my truth? How can I trust you with that? And that's the same. I feel like that's the same that I hear from survivors today.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I, in one of the, the first episodes, I used the term coercing people into safety. <laughs> we have a view of safety yes. that comes from a very white perspective that's in, steeped in, in, in social work theories, which are also steeped in a lot of white supremacy. Um, and we want to force people into those boxes. And people who resist that are seen as um, as not being responsible for their children, when fundamentally what they're resisting is entering into another power dynamic situation where they're being controlled. Mm-hmm because that's what they're actually trying to leave. And so your ability to ask questions without judgment and know that survivors have needs and desires and wants and thoughts about their own safety and their children and justice, which should be honored and then worked with, it doesn't mean that's where we all land because maybe there are, I know that as a survivor, I didn't know what a safe relationship looked like. That wasn't my fault, you know. though we're blamed for that. But like you said, I grew up in violence. It was all around me. It was my whole world. It was what informed me. So learning what a safe relationship looked like took somebody being able to not only use the words and talk about that, but mirror it to me in their own behaviors. And I think that that's the piece that we're missing so much. We can talk about safety all we want, but if we want people to be safe, we have to prove that we're a safe place for them, period. And that's work. You don't just swoop in and say, I'm a social worker and I'm an advocate, therefore I'm safe. No, you actually have to prove that you're safe. I agree, and that causes
2: agencies to have to look at at their processes too, right? Because agencies, um, we're all a part of the system, whether you're law enforcement, you're a hospital, your court system, or you're a social services agent, agency, whether you're child welfare or a DV shelter or whatnot, there are um, there are conditions um, to those
1: services. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, I think about, we've been talking about the the shared language or that you, you've referred to, the partnering language that we talk about at Safe and Together, and, and one of the things about why that language was put that way was partnering is, is used to describe what the professionals do. And I think a lot of times the system is focused on, oh, this is what, what the survivors should be doing, or this is what the families should be doing. And, and again, going back to that coercive mm-hmm. kind of framework. And, and And for me, you know, I would always ask, you know, supervisors or, or managers or workers, well, what did you do to partner with her? Mm-hmm. You know, what does your partnering practice look like? And and that really was meant to say you have responsibility here for how you present yourself, how you how you talk to somebody, how you listen. And I think a lot of times systems are focused on well these are the questions, you know, you th- these are the questions you should be asking. I mean, I, I going back, you know, that checklist. Mm-hmm. I remember 20 years ago getting asked by a child protection manager um, you know, give me the 10 questions we should be asking on our investigations. Give I'm like I can't do like I can I get that you want efficiency. I get that you want something measurable. I get I get that you want consistency. I understand those and, and you you want to be able to do it in a time frame that's unreasonable really. Um, that you're expected to do it in. But I was struck by how there was no question, teach us how to listen. How do we understand what we're hearing? How do we, how do we make sense of it? Um, there's very little talk of that, I think, in, in the practice. And I really appreciate you saying that, Eloise, It's about yeah. listening.
0: And then the next step is, how do I deal with my own reaction inside myself to what I'm hearing? Because even as a person who's very, very much survivor-focused, I have to challenge my own self when I hear certain phrases from survivors. And I have to say, oh, what is, what is this reaction resistance I'm feeling in my own body to this person and what they're saying? And why is that there? What are the judgments that I have? Um, and that's, I think that's another, that's the next human evolution step, at least for systems. It's like, how do we, how do we really train people to deal with their own assumptions mm-hmm. so that they can truly be a safe place for survivors. I completely agree. And, and I'm, I'm so glad we're really
2: honing in on the importance of listening. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, when I um, started the restorative um, justice process in my own life and, um, and went through my training, my very intensive training on it, um, I really discovered what a horrible listener I was, <laughs> I was like, wow I'm really just waiting to get my turn or I'm already thinking of my response or I'm thinking about my grocery list and um, I, I was I was such a horrible listener and, and it takes work um, and and there's and even that, right, you don't get a, like, certificate of listening, right? A master's in listening. <laughs> like, it's a lifetime work because, you know, we live in a world with distractions. Um, and, and like you said, David, you know, that checklist. And, and give me a checklist that I can do in 20 minutes, right? right. So there's also that time limit. On yeah,
1: everything. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think I appreciate you saying that because I think listening is a real skill. And I think self-reflecting is a real skill and then wading through your, your personal history and, you know, lessons around race and class and, you know, stereotypes and, and uh, I think that's all in the mix there that gets in the way of people really partnering uh, with survivors.
0: I think one of the big things for me is, is that um, professionals feel a sense of entitlement to believe that they understand victim experiences. And they understand it from a very clinical place, from a mental health place or a social work place. But understanding when you walk into a situation, even myself, I don't understand the experience of you as a survivor. You would have to, to tell me that experience. And then I would have to honor the reality of that experience and say, this is, this is Eloise's framework. This is what she experienced. And she gets to feel however she wants to feel about it, and really, my only job is to facilitate her being able to move on from that in a safe and healthy way. Period. Whatever mm-hmm. that looks like, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah,
1: I, I would call it when I, I've called that in training professional arrogance. Yes or institutional <laughs> arrogance I no i use that no word. i but it's but i i've used it and you know it's <laughs> no but i think it's i think it's useful to sort of name it and say that's that is that, that's a degree of arrogance mm-hmm. I and mean, we can put other words on it even but but it's sort of i don't get to tell you what's important to you
2: mm-hmm. absolutely and and i like to compare that um in, in my trainings to, especially if there's a room full of women, I can use this, um, who, who have given childbirth, I can use this example, or I've done it in like DV class, right? Because majority of the clients who referred, um, have a child because they're referred, you know, for that reason. And, um, you know, someone may have had, um, you know, given birth and it took, um, you know, 10 hours, and then someone else gave birth, and it took 10 hours, and they may, ha- they ha- still have very different experiences, they still, they ex- even though it was, they were both baby boys, they were both 10 hours, they were in the same hospital, they still have different experiences, and so, um, you know, I think that's the, the beauty of the work is, is that you are still so unique to me, that hearing about your experience, even though I've had my own, just like you said, Ruth, and our stories may be very similar. They are still very different because we are very different. And then also that cultural layer is a factor as well, right? Um, And so it's just never forgetting how unique people are. And I feel like if we did a better job listening, we would do... Less work reacting and and less um, and spend less effort creating new programs and <laughs> all, all of the, like I, I mean we probably have like I'm an exaggerating fifty thousand programs for everyone when if we really listen to what survivors and even people who use violence when they trust us with their truth. Mm -hmm. Then we can see real change and
0: restoration in individuals and in families. Well, Eloise, I am so excited that we have this conversation. And I knew we were not going to get to the the trafficking issues or or even the court stuff. stuff. I mean, even in depth, it
1: just sort of so so we're going to have you back. We're going to have you back.
0: This was Restorative Justice 101, right? You know, Eloise will be back. And we will do more on this topic because I think it's incredibly important right now. Yeah,
1: and, and um, just for people who may have picked up the podcast partway through, we've been talking to Dr. Eloise Cepeda, who is a national expert in restorative practices. And I didn't even ask you my question about your language about and rigorous intersection of child welfare, family violence, and race equity. So we're going to have to come back to that, Eloise. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners, um, if you want to... Um, listen to this podcast, subscribe to it. You know, it's on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Buzzsprout. Mm-hmm. Um, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. If you want to learn more about Safe and Together, um, go to the Safe and Together Institute.com or our virtual academy um, Which I, is
0: academy. That's safe so and together. together in institute. Institute. That. Um, we're doing
1: that together. Yeah, and Eloise, do you want to give, I know your website is not, I'm not sure it's fully active. Do you want to give your website or anything else if, if people reach, want to reach out to you?
2: Sure, you can, you can jot it down or, or bookmark. Um, it is under construction um, because we are um, revamping into different categories that we're practicing um, and training and restorative justice work. Um, so, the website is www.bethechange.tools, um, and that should be back up. We're revamping. I'm really excited about the new website because um, I, do, I do intend on really seeing um, some step work um, that would hopefully lead to um, inspiring um, others to find their place in the restored on the restorative journey.
1: That's great. So, uh, Eloise, thanks so Thank much for you. doing this. We look forward to being um, being in more conversation with you in the future. And, and we're out. We're out for <laughs> next time.
0: Thank
2: you so much. Be safe and stay sane out there.
1: Thank you. Yeah.